drawing room over here. Oh, hey, come on in. What does it mean to be looking at the sky in the 21st century? As we watch the stars, how many satellites are watching us back? Trevor Paglin is an artist whose work looks at mass surveillance and data collection and secret military bases. He's the subject of a new documentary, Unseen Skies, directed by award-winning journalist Yara Boomelam. And Yara is my guest in the drawing room. Welcome. Hi, thank you. So who's Trevor Paglin? Talk to me about his art and, and the politics behind it. So Trevor Paglin is a renowned artist who's based in the US um, or between the US and Berlin, and his work has really interrogated um, the inner workings of mass surveillance and more recently um, AI and computer vision, I suppose what you'd call surveillance capitalism these days, uh, through his artworks. And he sort of came of age as an artist at the time of 9-11. And with that time and with that, his art practice evolved as surveillance and the way it spread across the planet has evolved. Um, And so he started off looking at military bases in remote parts of the desert, bases that were literally not on any maps um, and that were remote or really hard to get to. And so he was trying to find ways for us to be able to see these sites that, you know, control a lot of surveillance and data going through them and that we we are just not aware of. He also got a cache of documents uh, from Edward Snowden that outlined all of these data cables running on the seabed floor, circling the planet where 99% of our data flows through. and was really keen to see what that looked like. And so he would scuba dive and photograph some of these cables, some of these cables that were also tapped by the NSA. And then as as his work continued to evolve, he realised that there was something much bigger and capturing much more of our data than any government has been able to so far. And that's tech giants like Google and Facebook that know your thoughts, your behaviours, and are able to manipulate them, as we've seen, um, with disinformation campaigns, with voter election behavioural um, uh, apparatus as well. And so he's he's pivoted his work and he's looking at that as well. This is your first feature-length documentary. So why Trevor? Why did you choose him as your subject? Trevor is a really deep thinker and I think what really drew me to him as an artist and as a person is that he didn't accept the status quo. He really wanted to challenge what our assumptions are of how the world should be Um, and he had a really interesting way of looking at the world and the infrastructures around us that we may not necessarily recognise as being really pivotal in how our in how our daily lives are conducted, but you know, he was able to find ways to put them in front of us, really beautiful ways in his artwork, and allow us to connect with these things that seem really obscure and abstract um, and make them really relatable and articulate his ideas in a way that I think is really relatable for um, your everyday person. 
Journalism often works in brief patches of time, short interviews or meetings. What's it like spending weeks or months around a person and creating a story of their work and their life? It's actually really refreshing. So I've been a journalist for 10, 15 years now and often felt that while it's, it's nice to be able to just go out there, do the story, come back, edit it, put it out there and not think about it again. There is something really refreshing about being able to sink your teeth into something, do a deep dive, think creatively about how to present it, um, think about poetic ways um, and really creative ways of presenting something, things that you know you probably wouldn't be able to get away with as much in straight up journalism. Um, and so it was, it was a great creative process and I really enjoyed it. As a journalist, you'll often cover things you don't agree with or necessarily even care about. Is that different for a feature? Do you have to connect to the topic on a really personal level, not just a professional one? Sometimes that antagonism could be okay in a film. I do think, though, that if you're going to spend, you know, what sometimes can be a minimum of, you know, three to four years, um, and I've heard of, you know, other people spending 10 years making a, a film, that you would want to connect with it on some sort of level. Um, and this particular project obviously had a fantastic artist at, his heart, at its heart um, whose work I deeply admire, um, but it also is a film that is at the intersection of the arts and public interest and in issues that I'm really fascinated in, and I think that was you know, really crude, critical to allow me to spend five years working on it. Trevor takes these beautiful landscape photos with a tiny drone somewhere in the image. How does the landscape change when there's a drone there and, and what does that do to our perception of that view? There's a scene in the film where we actually go out to one of the bases where um, these drones are usually deployed from and they were doing training drills. And um, there was this moment where we all sort of went silent after Trevor Paglin said, you know, anywhere else in the world, if you saw that over your head, you, you, just, you just wouldn't want to see that circling above you. Um, and it made you think that, sure, we were in the middle of um, California or Nevada at that stage and um, knew that these training drills were taking place, but for other parts of the world, for other people in other parts of the world, you know, a clear blue sky is something to fear um, because that's when drones can strike. And so that that really did resonate a lot with us and it's, it's a moment in the film that I think is quite powerful too. The film points out that, that ways of seeing are never neutral. There are always forms of power in the way that we see. You hinted at that, that there was a response to seeing a drone. What were the forms of power that you were interested in here? I think the um, interrogation that we do on the way computer vision and com- computer vision software is created um, is really key to that. So computer, computer software is obviously trained with images and those images are being put into a system by humans. And so what labels are assigned to these images are biased because we are biased. And there's a great line in the film from Trevor where he says, um, you know, a lot of these 
systems are designed by mostly white dudes in Silicon Valley, or when it comes to authoritarian states like China, you know, it's, it can lead to um, really skewed perceptions of how the world should be. And so if we are relying on AI um, and on computer vision software to increasingly make decisions about our lives, we have to know this. We have to know exactly what sort of data is being used or what sort of training data is being used um, to create these decisions or, or rather what sort of training data is being used that the AI then decides to make its decisions about our daily lives. And that's something that he tries to lift the lid on during the film. On Radio National, I'm Patricia Carvelis. Yara Boomelam is my guest in the drawing room and we're talking about her new documentary, Unseen Skies. Yara, you mentioned that the data systems aren't objective and, and categories of human have fundamental value judgments. Uh, whether it's Jezebel or homeless or success, those aren't obviously objective labels. How does that impact on those systems of surveillance and what does it mean for us, I suppose? I think we've already seen um, how some of these systems can have really bad effects on our lives. We saw that with RoboDebt, um, and that's a really simple example. We see now that there isn't a lot of questioning of how our data is being used during COVID, and there's been this huge ramp up in the use of technology as a solution to um, COVID lockdowns, for instance, with schooling, everything's moving online, uh, workplaces, everything is moving online as well. And even, you know, in terms of the health response, the use of QR codes um, and the rest of it. And so I think um, what's really important is showing people that the use of our data can't, is not always um, for good ends. It can be good. It's really beneficial to use data and and tech and software, it can usually, it can be really effective and make our lives more efficient, but without proper safeguards and without proper critiques and without a real understanding of what data is being used in order to make decisions about us and how our data is being used and by whom, um, then I think, you know, we can get into really tricky situations. And I think you see that now as well, where um, what we post online is being used by insurance companies or employers um, and, you know, students or school students are being tracked from a very young age um, through what they put up or, or through the homework that they do um, and the lesson plans that they do and what sort of profiles are being made about students um, or p young people as they go through their schooling life and how will that be used in the future by the tech giants who provide software um, to school students. And I think these are questions that we need to raise and that, um, that need to be, they need to really be interrogated um, so that they're not, they're not really used without critique, which I think is what's happening at the moment. Repeatedly through this film, you show the image identification of objects and people in the frame, but it's often wrong. Is it more of a worry if the identification is wrong or if it's right? I think it's more of a worry if it's wrong because, um, you know, if you're using your biometrics in order to 
you know, get through passport control or um, in order to be able to enroll for a particular government program. If you're not being correctly identified, then do you exist in the system? And then what problems does, does arise as a result of that? And we see that people from minority backgrounds, um, people who have darker skin, and most of the time people who are women, aren't being categorised correctly. And sometimes being out of the system can be really problematic in ways that um, you just wouldn't understand unless um, you've had to encounter that and you know, have to prove that you exist in the system. What were you interested in for the visual language of this film? There are overlays of data sets like Trevor's art and also a number of beautiful shots of the landscape. Did, did you want to link your own language to Trevor's? I really wanted the viewer to get a sense of what Trevor's world is and to dwell in his world through the visuals. And a part of that also was to have some layered meanings in the film through multiple camera angles um, and through the use of AI, computer vision software as well in the film. And so at times there is something that looks like a CCTV-like camera or an angle from a CCTV-like camera that is set up on the scenes. And we ran that footage through uh, computer vision software that's used in everyday commercial um, applications, just so that the viewer can get a sense of what it looks like when we're being analysed by these systems. Um, And then as time goes on in this film and COVID hits, that particular angle reverts to being something that looks like it could be from your phone or from your webcam or from your dash cam, because I suppose with COVID and the ramping up of the use of technologies during COVID as a way to solve our problems of not being able to see each other face-to-face or work face-to-face or go to school face-to-face, I wanted to show that these sorts of technologies are now permeating our lives in much bigger ways than previously. COVID hitting must have complicated things for you, I imagine. Yeah, it did. And I think towards the end there, um, Trevor was in New York at the height of the pandemic when New York was the epicentre of the pandemic worldwide. and It was um, just such a difficult time in New York. Um, and he was feeling really down and a part of his process was to document it. And he filmed um, some scenes for us in New York about what it was like and um, that very much that made it into the film and we explore that element very briefly. But I think it's sort of a, a nod to, I think, what's to come and why we need to know about how these technologies work. Take us down, uh, like on a trip with Trevor, while you could still travel. You were often heading out into deserts and remote wilderness together. What is it like being out in those spaces, knowing what, you know, what to look for? It's um, a lot of the spaces that we went to were quite remote and isolated. Um, And I'd often ask Trevor, okay, what's the biggest risk here? Is it someone coming out um, from one of these military bases and saying something to you or, you know, what what would the biggest problem be? And he would just be like, oh, it might be wild animals or it might be, um, you know, people who are hunting and don't realise you're there. 
it was one of those surreal experiences where you know that they that people at those particular bases know that you're out there but um can obviously see that you're a tv crew or or that you know you're out there doing particular work and aren't actually quite close to the base at all like at times we were you know 10 20 kilometers away um and so we were, we're well we're well within our legal rights to be there there wasn't ever a sense that we were in any sort of danger for what it is we were doing um, because, you know, Trevor does take a lot of care to make sure that everything he does is legal. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're very aware that you're in a really remote place and that, you know, things can go wrong. Um, there was this time that we went to the US-Mexico border to the Algodones dunes where um, some Marines were inexplicably there patrolling the border and they had a surveillance post and um, Trevor wanted to go and get a particular shot of or take a photograph of the border and um, he has this really interesting interaction with a Marine uh, unit and, um, you know, asked them, you know, look, I'm, I'm a photographer, I'm here to take some photos. Is it okay if I just take a photo, you know, 10 or 20 metres away from you here? And one of the Marine officers said, I, I'll, I'll just have to check, I'll need to call it in. And Trevor said to him, but yeah, um, you know, what authority would you actually have to say no to me? Um, and so, and this is the also the really interesting thing about Trevor is, you know, he does a lot of research before he goes out to these places and he knows where he's within his rights to be able to do certain things and he's able to push back when needed and and cajole and convince when needed as well to be able to go out and do the work that he needs to do. Throughout the film, we see these moments of waiting. We're watching Trevor wait. Was that a matter of taking us into Trevor's world, as you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I think it's really important to understand just how much of a process it is to get to this one piece of art that you might see in a gallery um, or a museum. And um, capturing that process, I think, was really important to me as well, just to get a sense of how much of a deep thinker he is and um, how the lengths that he goes to in order to get his artworks um, and so I, so capturing, yeah, those quiet moments and seeing Trevor in those moments, I think was quite important. You show a collaboration between Trevor and Kronos Quartet with music described as something that can be understood more with your heart than your mind. Is that the role of art like yours in issues like this, connecting to them with the heart instead of just the head? Yeah, I think art can present ideas and subjects in ways that um, the written word perhaps um, or journalism rather uh, can sometimes fail to do uh, and I think it can create some sort of empathies and I think I think I think the role of art is really important in bringing another view of the world that perhaps you never thought of or would have encountered otherwise. Um, and that particular collaboration, the Kronos Quartet, 
for me was the heart of the film because towards the end of that collaboration, uh, we do see that there's this synergy perhaps between um, what Trevor is describing as for the use of the last piece in the film. It's a performance um, called Different Trains by Steve Reich. And that performance was talking about the optimism around trains, this new technology that was coming into the world that was going to connect people and, um, you know, make things more efficient. And, um, you know, we hear the same things in in the California ideology around technology, um, that, you know, things are going to get better with technology and we're going to be more connected. But then the second movement uh, from that piece then speaks about the Holocaust and how trains were used in the Holocaust to, for one of the ma- major US major crimes of the 20th century. And for Trevor, that was a sort of sign of, okay, here's, here's a warning sign for us. Yes, there can be optimism around technology and technology can do great things, but if we aren't careful and, we, and if we just allow it to be used without critique and without proper safeguards, then it can have really nefarious outcomes. And we've seen with the testimony of Francis Haugen at US Congress about um, the Facebook whistleblower who said that, you know, Facebook puts profits over humans. You know, we are increasingly hearing these stories about how technologies and how big tech companies can't be expected to regulate themselves and how we need to really look more closely at how they're being run. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Patricia. Yara Boo-Mellum has been my guest in the drawing room and Unseen Skies is screening in cinemas and on demand at the Sydney Film Festival. Check online for details.